1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So have you ever worked for a leader that you thought was truly amazing? And if you're lucky to have had that experience, I'm going to bet that it was a lot of fun, that it was pretty exciting, that it was productive, that you had a great team, and it was really a fabulous culture. Now, unfortunately, too many people have the experience of working with a leader who damages the culture. So today I want to focus on what leaders need to do to create a good culture. We're going to talk about also what leaders need to do to avoid a toxic culture. And then we're going to look forward. Where is leadership headed in the coming years? And we're going to talk about this crazy thing called radical self-responsibility. What is it? Why does it matter for leadership and culture? Now, with me today is Keith Maron. Keith is a managing partner at Leadership Pathways, which is a consulting firm, and they're dedicated to helping organizations with bold visions achieve sustainable, high-performance, and industry leadership. Keith has over 35 years of experience, but that doesn't do anything near justice enough. He's designed over 100 seminars and workshops. He's created some of the most innovative leadership training programs, and he has five books on human and organizational change among many others. So, Keith, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Juan. I
1: appreciate it. I'm delighted to have you. I think this is great. You know, culture is one of the things that so many people want to talk about and so many people are stressed about. So, any insights on how to make the culture a stronger, better place? I, I think this is an important topic. So, let me start with the first question then. So, how do leaders drive culture? And I have a side question, which is really, can they? And let me explain why. I often look at leaders that I can see kill a culture, but I don't see very many leaders build the culture um, in a really positive, strong way. So, what's your experience with leaders and their ability to drive the culture?
2: Well, it's mixed, just, just as you describe. I I think that uh, some leaders guide or create the culture well. And many don't. And I think it has a lot to do with the health of the leader. The healthier, more mature leaders that I know, and we can talk about what I mean by that, but the healthier ones tend to create healthier cultures by definition because the culture is, the reflection, is a reflection of the leadership.
1: Okay. So, so what do you mean by healthy, mature leaders? What does that really look like?
2: Well, I've been... I've been um, you know, as, as you know, fascinated by this, these two subjects, leadership and culture, for my whole whole adult life. And one of the things that um, one thing that I did, I did my, my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, on the relationship between leadership effectiveness and um, ego maturity. And in this case, ego means the whole self. And and what I found was there was a clear correlation. And, uh, and so I mean two things. One, that the person has a high degree of self-awareness, which means that they're aware of themselves and they, they've been working on themselves to develop a healthier self. And self-includes their cognitive abilities, their emotional capability, their ability to see wide and far. And uh, maturity means the ability to in- inhibit one's impulses. So uh, a person who's mature doesn't automatically react to certain things, they pause, they give a little space, and they reflect, and then seek to choose wisely. And wisely often requires, you know, some deep thought. So that's what I mean. Um, and it's hard to come by those, mm-hmm. those two things, high self-awareness and high maturity.
1: Um, I'm going to ask in a minute how to do it, but I want to give you an observation I see among a lot of leaders as they just reach the pinnacle of their career in their senior most positions. Suddenly, it's almost as if they're unbridled and all the worst parts of their personality start to come out.
2: Do you see the
1: same? I mean, is that true in your observation? Uh,
2: uh, Directionally, probably so. I, I was in a workshop. Uh, I was leading it, it was about six or seven years ago, when uh, a bunch of executives and and we started the workshop by asking, "Tell me a little bit about what compels you to leadership." And one of the one of the folks said, uh, "Well, I wanted to be a leader because I thought all the other leaders made really bad decisions, and now I'm on the in charge, so I get to make the decisions. I already always wished that I." that I could make, and, and, and that's the dream of a lot of people, you know, to, I'm now in charge, so I can make decisions, but now that they're in charge, they're acting like they're in charge, and unbridled, I think, is a good word. Uh, he now gets to make decisions, failing to realize that, you know, being more inclusive might make him a better leader, so he's, he's uh, running rampant with his decision-making. Yeah.
1: It's a fascinating thing to me how much we how much leaders believe that the exercise uh, exercising their leadership is ultimately about deciding that that yeah. decisive and is in its decisive immediately taking choice right now none of this maturity of inhibiting impulses and pausing to reflect um and I get leaders do make decisions but there's a whole other stuff that needs to go in between before that decision is made
2: right. That, that's that's in my experience as well I, okay. I, I think that you know some of it comes comes down to a very basic question: what is uh, the the aim of a great leader, and what is the aim of leadership itself? and many people just kind of automatically think of leadership means I make decisions or I make this happen and so that puts them in the role of manager, really, and not necessarily leader. So what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to have a a different image of what I'm creating as a leader? That's a fundamental question most people don't even think about. And what do you see?
1: I mean, so you've talked about maturity and high self-awareness, but what do you see as the aim that great leaders should have in their mind?
2: Well, this is what um, I'd say almost uh, without reservation to all the people that I work with. That is the aim of a great leader. And, and you know, you've got to underf- underline the word great, but the the aim of a great leader is to create conditions where people can perform at their best. And it's the creating the conditions that is the hard part. So most people think about, I've got to make a decision. Well, you can do that, but does that necessarily raise people's game in any way? Does it enable the system to become more healthy? It may be a better decision in this moment, but the the, the aim of the great leaders to create, create conditions. And then, you know, of course, that raises the question, what kind of conditions are we talking about? Mm-hmm. But that, for me, is the foundational aim. Once you get that, it starts to open up to all kinds of questions. About what conditions? How... What well, conditions are necessary for others to perform at their best.
1: Okay. I love this. So my job, my primary aim as a great leader is not to make the decision necessarily, but it's to create the conditions where people perform at their best. Okay. So what kind of conditions?
2: Well, let, let's start with decision-making conditions. So with, okay. what you brought up in the beginning, uh, it seems to me that when the leader makes all the decisions, that's not a... Great condition for people to make decisions. So you want it. You want an environment where good decisions can be made. They're not always made by the leader. And if they're automatically made by the leader, then others just simply follow the leader and don't learn to make decisions themselves in a wise way. So the decision-making environment would be one. Another would be the uh, the, you know, the creativity and innovation that exists in that in that culture or that climate? Do people feel free to break out of the box? Because as we know, that's crucial for, for effectiveness in, in this day and age. Do people feel vibrant and alive? Do they feel like the best of who they are is invited out, or are they shrinking and pulling away? I would say those would be three that come to mind. I will um, bet others might come to mind for you, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. Do people have the ability to work through issues when they get stuck and they get in conflict? What's the what are the conditions that are present that support them in, in moving through that conflict and in arriving in a better place? I could probably go on and on and on, but that,
1: those I'm sure. come to mind. I for me, this last one that you're talking about, so granted, we need good decisions and we need decision, people to learn how to make good decisions. And we certainly need innovation in the culture and a willingness to break out of the box. And we need people to feel like they can be themselves and be the best of themselves. But this whole issue of the ability to work through issues and to deal with conflict, it's everywhere. And I think the cultures and the leaders who make it okay to have the hard discussion are the ones who are going to win In the end, I think they're going to win on performance and I think they're going to win in the marketplace.
2: Yeah, I agree. So, so let me ask you this and we can kind of dialogue about it. Why is that so?
1: Because if we can't have, this is my view, now you're the expert here as well, but my view is if we can't have a really difficult conversation and say what we really mean and have it be okay to disagree and to banter about in a productive way and come to a conclusion, then how can we have a good decision making and we sure are not going to be able to break out of the box. And then I feel like I have to, you know push down a part of myself when I disagree with what's going on. That's why I say it.
2: Yeah. But what's your view? Yeah, no, I, that, I, I share that. I, I, probably anything I would add would just repeat. Um, but I might ampl- amplify a couple things. I notice that when I'm in an environment where I don't feel free to speak my mind, you know, where I'm constricted, then I edit myself and I shut down parts of my thoughts and feelings that may be quite relevant. The conversation. So, just the experience of shrinking when we're not in you, me, or anybody are not an environment that that supports us to bring out all of who we are. And I think you know, in this day and age, as most of the people who are listening know, we're moving more and more toward an international world. And uh, many of the people that I work with are in workplaces that have lots of different countries represented, lots of different. Mm-hmm points of view, cultures, paradigms represented. And so we are all better off when we intermingle with other paradigms, other cultures, and when we seek to learn from them. We actually expand our awareness. We expand our capacity in those vibrant uh, uh, mixed cultures and mixed paradigms. So I would say development and learning we could add to the list are crucial in that conflict, and yet, if we can't create the conditions where we can support that conflict, then we all just shrink back into our own paradigms, and we never actually learn and grow.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I agree with that one. Absolutely, totally agree with that one. Um, I'm going to go backwards, though, because we can see on this one for a while. I want to go back to, you said, the leaders that are really creating healthy, mature cultures, cultivating that kind of culture, where their aim is to create conditions where people perform at their best. That the leaders who have high self-awareness, that they've really worked on themselves and have high maturity, and that they can inhibit impulses, pause, reflect, and then choose wisely, are the leaders that are really doing well in the culture. So the $24,000 question for the day is, how does one go about achieving high self-awareness and high maturity? And presumably it doesn't happen in an overnight or a one-day conversation.
2: No, no, it doesn't. Um, You know, you're probably... uh, uh, appropriately asked questions. How do you do this? How do you do that? We live in a culture where that's often what we want. Is the, and I'm not saying you personally. I think you're speaking to the, the uh, to the masses here. But we live in a culture where how to do X Y Z is very much uh, uh, asked for. And mm-hmm. my thought is, it's not quite a how to. Mm. That is, okay. it starts with a, it starts with a commitment. You know, it starts with a leader saying, "I want to grow and expand and become as self aware and uh, uh, experience self, um, uh, you know, self esteem at the highest level. I want to feel good about who I am. That's my aim, and I'm going to go on a journey. I'm going to go on a a path to discover that. And then the path has many different tributaries, many different ways. But it starts with, I want that for myself. I want that in my life. So the commitment to me is, me is all. And then we can talk about different paths. And okay. I, I would say many paths, many paths lead to the same aim.
1: Okay. So give me okay. an example of one of the paths. Kind of... What are people subscribed yeah. to? I agree with you that you got to want it because if you don't want it, you're not going to do the work that takes you to get there. That's right. All right. Yeah. So what does so, I so path a path restore?
2: I'll, I'll, I'll speak to a, a classic path and then I'll speak to some non-classic paths. But one classic path is through therapy. And hmm? many people, interestingly, they see therapy as I'm going to go there if I'm stuck or if I'm broken. Hmm. And so... They, look, they work to heal something. But what if therapy is also a powerful place to self-examine and wonder about oneself and to seek to find one's own blind spots and break through those blind spots? Then therapy can be an, a wonderfully eye-opening experience with the right therapist slash guide. And that's, to a large extent, why people seek coaches. Okay. Uh, a good coach can do the same thing. So that's, that's classic, and I'd say that's number one, and not the, not necessarily the most important. Um, you know, second that comes to mind, of course, are personal growth workshops, where um, uh, the, you're in a group with other people who are similarly seeking, and preferably you're with a group that is not, you know, trying to heal something really broken. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also a valuable thing to do, but, uh, what if I'm somebody who doesn't feel like I'm broken? I think I'm functional. I think I'm doing pretty well, but I just want to expand. There are lots of different places and lots of different guides, including myself, who work with people to help them simply expand. And those are two classic groups.
3: Okay. Sounds
1: pretty exciting. I will say that of the leaders that I have worked with and the senior leaders and really admired what they're doing, admired the culture they're creating and so forth, one of the things that they seem to be relentlessly in pursuit of is feedback. It's what's one little perspective that I could think about, that I could see, that the thing, action I could take, a way I could say something differently that would have a greater impact. Um, yeah. And... It it sounds to me that that's some of the same that you're describing here in this willingness to go on the journey and stay on the journey yeah. for that matter.
3: Okay.
2: Seems like a, seems like a very practical thing. Um, but you know, let, let's play with that a little bit. I mean, yeah, I I would agree wholeheartedly that the the healthier the leader, more they seek and want feedback, um, and they're 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 not offended like they're. They're not afraid of hearing they didn't handle something well, and that requires self-esteem. So back to the original premise of self, self-awareness or self-esteem, that maturity and self-esteem and self-awareness go hand in hand. So so they, they seek feedback, but then this is something I'm working on for myself. I listen to feedback,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then I sometimes just if it doesn't already agree with my paradigm, I discard it. Mm-hmm. I go, nah, thanks for the feedback. Nah, not true. And lately I've been going, asking for feedback, and then saying, well, what if there is some truth here? What is it that's hard for me to see? What am I not wanting to see? What am I afraid of seeing? And so I'm the attitude by which I ask for feedback and take it in Matters a lot in terms of whether or not the feedback actually caused me to grow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I do see leaders who will listen to the feedback. They seem to take it in. They seem to hear it. They seem not to be defended about it. And then they're willing to make a conscious decision that says, right, I'm going to do something about that. Or, you know, no, that's not so important right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's a, and then I there's wonder a,
2: why, why are they saying not so important? Heck, yeah, because right, they right. afraid to say it or see it or something else.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's possible. And I like your question that you the feedback may not feel like it's right on target, but to look at what is the kernel, kernel of truth in here or what is it that I'm afraid of seeing or try avoiding to see. I think that's a really important part. The um, Let's talk about defenses for a minute. Keith, because one of the things I find is so many people that I work with get so defensive so quickly. And once those defenses are up, man, it's hard to break through for anything that's going to be constructive. So, yeah. you know, any advice on dealing with my own defenses or defenses in someone else?
2: Well, let, well, I'll do I'll do the defense of somebody else first. That's the simple one. My own defenses are harder. I don't mean mine personally. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: but when somebody's defensive, I found this cute little phrase. How, how do I say this? So, first of all, when somebody's defensive, usually we go, oh my goodness, that person is defensive. And in our own minds, we experience them as defensive, but we don't say anything. We probably decide, oh, they're defensive, therefore maybe I better not touch this on this subject again, or maybe I better back off. We know that if they're defensive, we probably touch something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we've triggered some kind of fear or discomfort or blind spot or something. That's why they're defensive. We know that, and we back off. And I think backing off does a disservice to the other person. So, um, meaning they're now caught in their own blind spot, and they can't see it, and they, they, their defensiveness will remain, and they won't learn. So, I found this cute little phrase. I have said, oh, you seem a bit defensive right now. I'm wondering are you experiencing me as offensive? And this is my way of saying, hey, I don't mean to be offensive and I don't mean to say something that causes the defensiveness. If you feel I'm doing that, let me know because I have something to learn. But if you're not feeling that, then the defensiveness may be over there and I'm wondering if you're aware of it. And so that little phrase just opens up that whole thing. And I believe that, that was, that's really useful. Most yeah. people end up saying, they'd say, oh, no, 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 you weren't being offensive at all. This is my defensiveness. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And then I might follow up by saying, I'm wondering what you're feeling dependent about. And then we go into the inquiry. We, we kind mm-hmm. of explore that. So that's my answer to the first question. Um, I haven't found anything better. It seems to work each time. I'm oh, sure wow. I'll now... Tomorrow, find out a moment where it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. well, I love anyway, that phrase. Any, any, thoughts,
2: any thoughts about that before we go on to how do I deal with my own defenses?
1: I think that's a really interesting one, this notion that, that I do find that when people are defensive – There's not much good that's going to happen. And I do often advise people to stop talking at that point and come back at it another day. But I like your phrase that you acknowledge you seem defensive. I'm wondering if you're experiencing me as offensive. What a lovely way of turning it back to yourself and either you learn something out of it or the conversation can go on in a more substantive way. I think that's interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's something here for either – either or both of us, to learn, let's not pause here. Or, if we're going to back away, which your advice may be good, if we're going to back away, then let's choose to back away consciously. Let's
3: Mm -hmm.
2: both agree, not something to discuss right now. Can we come back to it tomorrow? Uh, And usually the person who's defensive would be happy to. Yeah. Great. Okay, so now the other question. The other question is, what do I do when I'm defensive? Again. So, this one is, is big. It's as big as the ocean. Let's, let's, ta- let's talk a little bit about why would I or you or anybody get defensive in the first place? You know, let's, let's peer into that for a moment. Let me, let me ask it afresh, you know, for myself. I don't want to go into automatic in my answer because it seems like a really good question. Well, I think I get defensive if, I, if, if you're saying something that I feel threatened by, I'm likely to get defensive. And, and so, wondering what's the threat becomes really interesting. It's, it's got to be an ego threat or a psycho-spiritual threat of some kind. And so, wondering what's the threat in the moment, why am I so threatened by this? Mm-hmm. Who in me is threatened? Those are lovely questions to ask. That's
1: great. Um, yeah. I often but say... I,
2: I want to tell you... I'm going to tell you a practice that I'm doing, but... Uh, but go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead please. Go ahead. No, tell I, me yeah, the practice. Go, 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 go with where you were going. Well, it would be better.
1: I was. I often say that you can understand people better by understanding what they're afraid of, what they fear. You know, what's what's the core fear? Not because I believe you there go off and manipulate it. I think that's a disaster. But at least if I understand what your core fear is, then I know where you're likely to more get defensive, how you help you think about it, how to talk to you about it. I mean, I just feel like understanding a bit of that has to help when you're trying to lead. But I'm interested in your practice. So
2: so you're saying, my or your defensiveness would likely be fear-driven and understanding that fear. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So, um, and, and if you go into the fear, often, I'm, uh, I have a very, very good friend and colleague who calls this, you know, a complex. I'm often in a complex. Uh, I'm twisted in my, in in, in in a dynamic. It's an early childhood thing that I'm caught in. And I, and and so it's, a, a young person in me is responding right now in the defensiveness. Mm-hmm. So if I really get that, if I get that almost always the defensiveness is driven by a complex or a fear or a young part of me, mm-hmm. then I might slow down. Mm-hmm. So here's the practice that I, I've been doing. And uh, I, I've, I've loved I've been doing it for over two years now. I can actually say two years and four months to the day. Because it was a New Year's resolution that I made to myself two, two years, four months ago. And it was this, that I will never, ever, ever get defensive again. Uh-huh. Ever. Okay. And I made a 100% commitment to myself. And so, look, I'm going to admit this to you and the rest of the world. I failed in my commitment. Okay, okay. I have failed miserably. There are many, many times I get defensive. But the beauty of the commitment is that every single time I've gotten defensive after making that promise, I have stopped, paused, and looked at it. Okay. And and so, A, I'm much less defensive now because I've made that commitment. Uh, The reason why I'm much less defensive is whenever I feel a bit of defensiveness coming up, I stop it. I kind of go, nope, we're not going there. I made a promise myself, okay. so I'm going to just open up right now even though I can feel myself close up. So the second thing that's happened, that was A, so this would be B. The second thing that's happened is that whenever I've broken that commitment, I look at it, and I go back to the person. I apologize for being defensive, and I, I give myself a second chance, and I feel into what do I really need to face here. And every single time I've learned something meaningful as I face the defensiveness. So I, I, can say, I can't say I've kept my commitment, but I can say I've always come back, recognized the defensiveness, apologized, and learned, which has That's been a- wonderful.
1: That's an incredible just to think about the practice of that. So first off, let's admit all of us get defensive. It's just a normal human reaction that happens, add a little stress to it, and that makes it even more likely. But to make the commitment that you're never, ever, ever going to get defensive doesn't mean that you're not going to do it, but that you have a commitment to take an action on it. So to stop and pause and look at it and understand what it's about and open up, as well as if you've broken the commitment, then go and apologize to people, get a second chance and look at what you need to face. Boy, is that an intense practice. It's
2: intense and delightful. That's right. Yes. And I've gotten better and better and better, better and better and better.
1: Well, and, you know, I think this is where we started this whole, which is an interesting place to have end. We're going to take a break at this point, but let me just kind of summarize what's in my mind on this one. I started asking you how much does a leader cultivate a healthy and mature culture? And you said only those leaders who have high self-awareness and maturity are the ones that are really going to do a great job of creating a thriving, positive culture. And we've talked a little bit about what that looks like, we've talked about the kind of what the leader's aim is to create the conditions where people are at their best and then we take this deep dive into something around defensiveness and it's just one piece of what I think it means to have high self-awareness and maturity because that's what this stuff is about at least I think so so We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue on this journey, and we'll talk a little bit about where leadership is going in the future as well as radical self-responsibility. My guest today is Keith Maran. Keith is Managing Partner of Leadership Pathways, five books, and I'll just reference one, The Golden Flame, The Heart and Soul of Remarkable Leadership. Highly recommended, and we'll be right back.
0: business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com.
3: The Voice America
0: Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to out of the comfort zone.
1: Welcome back. Today I'm with Keith Marin and Keith is managing partner of Leadership Pathways, the author of five books and a host of other things. The book we've a uh, book I recommend is called The Golden Flame. So we've just been talking about leadership in general and particularly leaders creating strong cultures. And the thing I really want to emphasize here is that the aim of leadership is to create conditions where people are at their best. I think that's just a brilliant way of describing what a leader needs to be doing to create a culture that's thriving in every sense. Now, I'm going to shift the tables, and I want to talk about this thing called radical self-responsibility. Keith, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, it is, um, uh, so let's, let's start with responsibility. Responsibility is the ability to take care of, uh, take responsibility for. You know, has to do with, I see myself as an agent. In affecting whatever condition i 'm looking at and I, I I act on that agency, so that's kind of responsibility self responsibility is i'm acting on i see my response self responsible for myself and in particular it's responsible for my own thoughts and my actions, and I have the ability to um, change my thoughts, change my actions. And, and so if my action or reaction is causing problems, for example, I have the ability to not do that. We often react to all kinds of things. We get triggered by all kinds of stuff. And we, we, we kind of go blah, we just react. We do whatever we think we're going to do. And, and, and we do that automatically and almost all, always, if it's automatic, it's going to be problematic. It's going to, have a, it's going to have a negative impact. And so can I take full responsibility for my impact and actually choose differently? That's the idea of self-responsibility, the way in which I'm writing about it with my co-author, Danielle Conroy. The radical part is 100%, not 98%. It's kind of a little bit like my commitment to not being... Uh, defensive, 100% responsible for my thoughts and my actions, especially when I'm caught or in reaction, that's the hardest time to do it, and the most important time to take responsibility. So that's the idea. Okay. It is, we've we've been working with lots of people in helping them develop, and it's been a wonderful journey of learning, and I've been working on myself to be 100% responsible. Anyway, let me, I'll pause there.
1: Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, And it sounds easy in theory. So the notion is that 100% of the time, especially when I'm caught in reaction, which means something has happened I probably don't like very much, 100% of the time I take responsibility for my thoughts and actions and I have the ability to both change my thoughts and my actions. Okay? So, give me an example, can you, of what this looks like, or of how you're working on this practice? Either way.
2: Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, I uh, this is just a kind of a, a simple one. Uh, uh, I'm with my family last night, and I um, can see myself. Uh, my stepmother said something, and I got really tight. And I could feel myself reacting and um, even an impulse to attack. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing that, I stopped. And that's the first step in radical self-respect in the practice that we teach is to stop. Don't do it. Just if you're feeling the impulse, don't do it. This gets back to maturity, of course. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling the impulse, don't do it. So I didn't, I said nothing. I zipped it up and then I paused. And then the third step is to see if I can feel what's stirring inside of me. And I did. I can feel some very young and enduring part of me that, that feels left out and not considered. And, uh, and then I, I kind of went, Oh, there that is. There's that part of me um so that's an example I, i'd like to give an example at some point in the workplace but that one's fresh for me since it happened last night
3: right
1: right so the basic practice is to feel it to recognize it to sense it almost before you understand what it's about two is stop yeah. don't say anything Yeah. So that's the control the impulse the three is pause I often say a couple of deep breaths help there. And three is, uh, the final, the fourth one, rather, is this exploration of what's this really about? What has been stirred inside of me? Did I get that right? Yeah, something
2: like that. I think So the, the interesting one for me is that how do I recognize it in the first place? Yeah. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's not so easy to even recognize that I'm in a reaction. Um, so it requires that I'm self-aware enough to see it. And there are mm-hmm. markers that are indicators, but mm-hmm. most people they don't even recognize. they just they just give themselves complete permission to go blah. Yeah. yeah, And I certainly do sometimes too., Yeah. that's a technical by the way,
1: blah. Yeah, absolutely. And that blah may be <laughs> in the moment, but it may also be to somebody else down the hall later, you know, with a yeah, Day. yeah, yeah. This is totally inappropriate and yada, 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 as we all know.
3: Yeah.
1: okay. So I get the steps, I get the need to recognize, and I can almost get the need, for me, I can feel it in my body. There's a particular point of tension when I'm about to do something I shouldn't be doing. So so long as I recognize that feeling in my body, I maybe most of the time can be self-aware. Are there other tricks of ways of recognizing it before I actually say something?
2: Yeah, well, so certainly if I'm tight, or if I'm feeling a strong impulse, the stronger the impulse to speak, the more likely I'm triggered. And the more likely I'm triggered, the more I'm, I've am i got something to learn. So it's almost like when it's easy, it's light, and it's no big deal. When it's really hard, it's just stop. Mm-hmm. That's the most important time to stop. And so you've got this, my goodness, you really take sometimes an enormous amount of willpower to to say, I'm not going to give in to this impulse. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Um, But so just your tightness and the degree of strength of the impulse um, are all kind of indicators. And, you know, I guess one of them is the degree to which you want to put energy on the other person. Mm -hmm. Like, usually when I'm saying something to somebody out of anger, I'm believing they're the cause and they're the problem and I'm putting energy at them. If my energy is going at them, then it's probably an indicator I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm in a reaction. I'm triggered in some way. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. And do you find that most of the times in working with people, this triggered, the thing that gets triggered is really has its grounds in childhood or in earlier life? Or can it be more recent than that?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly can be more recent. Uh, You know, any kind of traumatic event at any point in one's life is going to cause a trigger, is going to afterwards cause you to be triggered by something that's reminiscent of the trauma. So it could happen at any point in life. But the gnarly ones that are kind of more deeply rooted complex are typically earlier, in life, and when we had less resource, when we were more vulnerable, uh, mm-hmm. less more affected by our parents or the people around us or our peers or our teachers. And so that's when it's more likely to happen, but it, it could be any time. You know, if you, if you had a traumatic event recently or, you know, the divorce of somebody, divorcing somebody, or loss of somebody, any kind of major stressful would probably have an imprint in your body in some way. And that imprint yep. of body would then cause a trigger.
1: Right. Right. Okay. All right. That's, I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit for this one. But the notion with radical self-responsibility, just to come back to kind of put a close on this one, is that I... of the time, regardless how difficult it is to do or how much I think it's really your fault, 100% of the time, I take responsibility for my thoughts, my actions, my words, and I stop when I feel this strong impulse, and particularly when it's extraordinarily hard to do it, because I have a few things I want to tell you that you should hear right now. I stop, I pause, Mm -hmm. and I try to understand what's that really about, what is really triggered here, and then make a conscious choice on what I'm going to do about it, just not in the moment. We started this show by talking about the greatest leaders or the best leaders who create the best cultures are really the ones who have the high self-awareness and high maturity, and that means they can control the impulses, and this is what it's about right there. Mm -hmm. But it's so much easier to make it somebody else's fault.
3: The reaction oh, is not, Very
1: not because of anything. that's because of what you did is so much easier than actually looking yeah. at why do I have such a strong reaction.
2: Yeah well this is partly why I got into the whole thing in my whole life is I had parents who tended to blame me a lot. They tended to get angry a lot and it was horrible at times to live in that environment. So I kind of no no surprise, went on a journey to figure out how do I create a better world so that people don't do that.
1: <laughs> Funny thing about how our parents drive our, our choices and careers yeah. along the way. Another day, we'll come back to yeah. that one. That's what we mean by trigger. Yeah. I'm going to shift the conversation just a minute because before we're out of time, I want to make sure I get your thoughts. Um, I know you've done a lot of thinking about where you think leadership is going in the future. Where is it going? Yeah.
2: Well, um, it's certainly, I, I, my, part of my answer is I don't know. You know, well, <laughs> it's, it, it's certainly out of my control. And, but, uh, you know, what, what, the thing that uh, has gotten me, I, I want to say a couple things. First of all, I'm fascinated by Maslow's work, Abraham Maslow. He wrote a mm-hmm. book called The Farthest Reaches of Human Nature. And um, I'm fascinated by The Farthest Reaches of, of Leadership. What is possible? And so I can say more about what I think is possible than I can about Mm -hmm. where it's going, but I hope it's going in the place where it's possible. So that's one thought. Okay. second thought is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with integral theory and uh, what's been emerging in that particular stream of thinking about human nature and human evolution, but it seems to me Jean Piaget got it right. He was an early child psychologist, and he started to chronicle natural um, the natural evolution of children, which mm-hmm. we accept completely as true in this day and age. You know, he's legendary for his yep. research on kids. You know, he coined the term the terrible twos, or one of his students did, and and, and they go through natural phases. Well. There's been a lot of research since then, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and to this day, that shows that adults can continue that evolution, and the evolution forms a very particular pattern, and uh, and if that's so, then there seems to be a natural next step and beyond. So all of evolution in human society, as far as I can see, tends to be toward Um, greater conceptual uh, complexity, greater emotional differentiation, greater long-term thinking, greater wider thinking, we get basically um, more and more complex in our our individual and collective capability. And, um, And so the next evolution of leadership has something to do with leaders looking further down the road hearing even more and more about, about, you know, our society and seven generations beyond, the Native American notion of seventh generation. It, 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 the next evolution of leadership has something to do with seeing wider, seeing the impact that we have not only longer term, but also on other people, and seeing deeper, seeing being more self-aware. And the combination of longer, you know, further, wider, and deeper yields healthier leadership. And that's what I think is, I hope, is what's emerging. I hope I hope we're not regressing, although sometimes it appears that we are. <laughs> I don't think we are.
1: I am heartened. I'm going to just echo a bit of what you said, that I find um, more and more leaders willing to go on a self-awareness journey. I'm not yet convinced that enough are willing to go as deeply as we have been talking about today, but I'm seeing an increased demand for that self-awareness journey, and more and more people like us who are doing this work are talking about the importance of it for creating a healthy culture. So I'm hoping that as we get better at our practice, that this is exactly where leadership will go, the, the best leaders will go, is, as you said, looking further down the road, farther and wider,
2: deeper. Me too.
1: Me too. I, I recognize that we have all seen in all walks of life a number of leaders that make us pause and have doubt about where we're going in terms of leadership. But I hope we also see people around us that give us courage to keep going at it, to keep driving at it. Yeah. It's um it's an interest it is very interesting component. Uh, last couple of minutes before we completely wrap, I want to talk about inclusive culture because in my life it's something I care deeply about because I think that is part of what creates the conditions that create a culture where people are really performing at their best, being at their best. And you've done a lot of work around this. So, you know, what in your view needs to happen to create this lovely, more inclusive culture? And is it really just more of what you've been talking about anyway?
2: Well, I'm going to offer a paradox I, I share with you the value of being more inclusive, but to a point. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a leader of an organization, of a business, the CEO or leader or whatever, just in, in, in my area, I've got to have certain values.
3: Mm-hmm. I've got
2: to have certain principles. I've got to have a, a vision if I'm going to be a powerful leader and and, and some boundaries boundary conditions, and expectations. And great leaders not only are clear about those things, but they're inviolable or immovable. And that's the opposite of inclusiveness. <laughs> that is, uh, I'm not, if you're not willing to play this way in this sandbox, you're, you're not welcome in the sandbox. <laughs> and, and so I want to take a stand for non-inclusiveness around certain things. And then within those boundary conditions, the more inclusive I am, including other people's thoughts, other people's feelings, other people's capacity, other people's often differing views than mine, the more I can include them, the better. So in my world, you're doing both less and more, less inclusiveness and more at the same time.
1: This... In some ways, this is so tightly connected to what we've talking about. So you said that leader of business has to have some boundary conditions, a vision of where we're going, some principles, some values, some limits on what we're going to do or how we're going to do it, that values in effect, that are not movable, they're non-negotiable. This is it, period. But within yeah. that vessel of the boundary conditions, there's room for inclusivity on ideas and perspective and experiences.
2: Wonderfully. yeah, And, and, and of course, races, cultures, uh, orientations, none of those things really, to me, I want to be inclusive of all of those things, no matter what. But the hardest thing to be inclusive of to me, as somebody who has a different point of view.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And now I want to be inclusive of that as long as it's within the boundaries. Yeah. If it's not, I don't want to fight.
1: Yeah. But this means, go right back to where we started, that I have to have a high degree of self-awareness and a high degree of impulse control and a lot of understanding about who I am and my own defensiveness and what's triggered me in my life and so on. If I haven't done that kind of journey, then I'm not going to have any clue about what kind of boundary conditions are really going to be critical for me to do what I need to do as a leader.
2: Yeah, yeah. It turns out the healthiest of leaders, the ones who bring this back to full circle, the ones with the highest self-esteem and self-awareness and, and maturity, are already naturally inclusive. Uh. And therefore, the path is to become... It is not to learn the three steps to inclusiveness. The path is to become more self-aware, self uh, good with oneself, self-esteem, and and, uh, and maturity. Mm-hmm hope we haven't released the world too much, but it seems, it seems pretty clear to me. That's what the book, The Golden Flame, is all about, by right right. the
1: way. Great. I, I love this. I mean, it's quite um, quite an interesting component here to think that I, if I just take our whole conversation and try to summarize it into one minute— That the notion of what I should aim to do as a leader is to create the conditions where other people can be at their best. That is not necessarily to decide myself or to set the vision or to set the strategy. I create conditions where other people can be the best. In order to be able to create those conditions, I have to have a high degree of self-awareness. A very high degree of maturity and a very high degree of self-esteem, all of which require me to understand radical self, self-responsibility self or to, to understand what it is that I have control of in myself, what triggers me, what causes defensiveness, and what I do about that so I don't just spill that all out on the world. And it's in those circumstances that we're going to actually create a culture that includes some of the best ideas that challenges people. And I would assume that gets us right back where we started. That's going to be a culture where people can speak up, where conflict isn't a threat, where we can innovate, where we can break out of the box. We can do all those things that we began the show that make such a difference. But the core starts with how I understand myself as a leader, from Maturity to Stuff Awareness.
2: Yeah. You, you, you're brilliant. That was a brilliant summary. I think my whole life was just summed up. <laughs> Wonderful. I do, thank
1: you. I do worry. Thank you. Thank you. I do worry about being able to sum up a very complicated topic in a very short piece. But the idea of the importance of taking that deep self-dive could be more transparent to me. All right. My guest today is Keith Marin. There are five books that Keith has written. The one we've talked about the most time is called The Golden Flame The Heart and Soul of Remarkable Leadership. Highly, highly recommended. Keith, thanks for being a guest. Fabulous discussion.
2: My pleasure.
1: All right. And join us, please, next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today.